you can actually accurately say something with your words that exactly corresponds to things in reality. And we can say a lot of things and draw a lot of correspondences, but there's always this fragility, both of language and of human knowledge, that should invite us to kind of have a humble posture before, before people and things. And I think metaphors help us do that. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Joy Clarkson is the author of Aggressively Happy and host of the podcast Speaking with Joy. She's the books editor for Plow Quarterly and a research associate in theology and literature at King's College London. Joy completed her PhD in theology at the University of St. Andrews, where she researched how art can be a resource of hope and consolation. Her new book is You Are a Tree and Other Metaphors to Nourish Life, Thought, and Prayer. In this episode, Joy and I talk about the ways that figurative language shapes the way we think about the world and ourselves, and Joy tries to convince me that the distinction between simile and metaphor is meaningful. Joy Clarkson, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast. Thanks for being here. All I'm looking forward to our conversation. Oh, yeah. Sorry, um, cut you off. <laughs> The title of your new book is You're a Tree. It's an odd statement. What does it mean? Well, uh, I draw it from Psalm 1. So I I draw my authority from from Scripture (laughs) and say that I can be confident in doing that. It is a book about metaphors and about how the metaphors we use shape the way that we live. And I picked that metaphor specifically because it's one of the most... um, rooted in scripture. It's everywhere Mm -hmm. you look. Uh, But also because I think it's a helpful kind of uh, response to the ways that we often find ourselves describing things in the world and ourselves right now, Mm -hmm. which is that we tend to use metaphors of computers and machines and money, whether or not we realize it. Mm -hmm. And I think those can be exhausting, but also just inappropriate to the depth of human experience. So I think the metaphor of you are a tree, which is given to us by scripture and many poets ever since, is um, a fitting and provocative response to our kind of technologized world. Yeah. Your your point, you know, is well taken that the, the language of metaphor um, is not just, um, it's not decorative, it's not um, uh, an ornament. Uh, to thought, it shapes our thought. Mm. And um, uh, you suggest that, um, I mean, I, I think you can tell me if I'm, uh, uh, this is a fair fair thing to say, you are suggesting that the dominant metaphor that we use to think about our own mental processes in many ways, our, our own life, is that of the computer, that I'm, I'm a meat computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was trying to think of another possible, you know, what would be a maybe the second, you know, what's the next most used metaphor for human beings besides machinery? And I couldn't come up with anything in terms of what we actually get used in in everyday um, in everyday life. Um, Do you? I mean, you you are making the case, aren't you, that the the computer or the machine is the dominant metaphor for the way. People talk about human beings in our Western world. Is that fair to say? Well, I'll be pedantic. Um, having okay. having uh, 
finished a PhD a couple years ago, you want to make sure that every claim you make, you can absolutely completely uh, sure. follow up. And you'll get I over it, by the way. Good, good. I, I, <laughs> I hear, I hear, I hear that it softens with age, and you get yeah. more confident again. No, I, I suppose I can't audit all the language of the modern age and 100% right. say that it's the machine. Um, but I do think it, it's one of the most prevalent, if not the most prevalent. And I think it makes sense that it is, right? Because one of the things I talk about is metaphors are kind of the things we reach for, whether consciously or unconsciously, to describe things that are difficult to put into words. Mm -hmm. So we reach for things in our experience. And, you know, as you and I are doing this this podcast, you know, I, I like to think we're both probably pretty literary incarnational people, but we're doing it through, I'm, I'm looking at you in a screen, I'm talking into my little blue Yeti microphone, I'm using my AirPods. Yeah. And so we're just surrounded by machines. And so mm -hmm. that I think has become more the language you use because it is a lot of the uh, the imagery that we are offered in our everyday life. So, so yes, with, with a slight, with a softened footnote version of not wanting to say, I, I know everything about the modern language. Yes, I think yeah. that is one of the kind of operative metaphors that we that we reach for when we're describing both humans and and other things too, I think. Um, yeah. All right. And nobody, you know, nobody really says, I I am a computer or I'm a meat computer or anything like that. I don't I mean I don't know people who say I am a computer, but work that out a little bit. When you say we use that mm -hmm. those that metaphor um, could you kind of work work that idea out a little bit? Yeah. What do you mean by that? So what I mean by that is I'm kind of talking about it in the sense of what um, there's a book called Metaphors We Live By, which was a, a big, big splash uh, a few years ago. And they talk about it's um, neuroscientists talk about kind of operative metaphors. So they're metaphors right. that we don't have in the front of our mind, but they are kind of operating behind the scenes as an overarching image for some things that we draw on it all the time. So I may not say I'm a machine, but I may say to you that I want to update you on uh -huh. what's happened in my life. I may say that I need to um, take some time off this weekend and recharge. Mm -hmm. um, I may say that um, this is more of a machine one, but that it's taking me a while to adjust, right? It's, hmm. That's a word we use for cars, for, for something that needs to be tweaked, something that's um, uh, metallic. And then even the ways we describe things like uh, productivity, yeah. that word, right? Productivity is to produce something. It, it doesn't bring to mind uh, a tree that's bearing fruit. It brings to mind a, an assembly line, right? So we have this mm -hmm. kind of image of productivity, of being swift, of being able to do the same thing over and over again with great rapidity. Mm -hmm. um, so, so those are kind of some ways, some easy ones that you reach for. But I think those are some ways in which the language of what we ex how we expect machines to act, to update, to adjust, um, to produce, we yeah. use those words to talk about ourselves. And I think mm -hmm. something that is interesting about that is that um, we used to do the opposite thing. So the word, I talk about this in the book, but the word computer yeah. um, used to be a word that described a human being. So mm -hmm. a computer was someone who computed. It was either <laughs> yeah. somebody who sat with the little buttons doing the thing, or before that, it was, I think it was used back in like the 1600s to describe someone who did math computations. And so originally, when we described a machine as a computer, we were kind of applying human terms to a machine. Sure. And now we've kind of moved because it's so around us all the time. We've moved from using technological language to describe humans. Yeah. So that yeah, each of those words that you were listing there, I thought. I mean, a lot of those did, 
update probably didn't. I, I think update was goes back farther than computers. Probably I'm not sure, but um, one suspects that that was applied to computers, and now we think of it as a computer word um, hmm. and or icon. You know, um, hmm. that's um, which is just kind of the way language works, right? I mean, the word ardent used to just mean on fire, and um, <laughs> I think it was Shakespeare who first used ardent to mean my heart's on fire, you know, and, 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 but now you think someone was a lunatic. They said, call the fire department. My house, my house is ardent, you know? Um, <laughs> but one, I really appreciate the way you talk about um, the, to think of ourselves as computers or as machines is both incomplete and unforgiving. Mm. Um, can you, Work work out that idea. What's unforgiving yes. about that that metaphor? I think that um, what I meant by that is so I think about my own my own machines, my own computers, right? And there I have expectations of my computer. Um, I, I expect that it will work the same way every day. Um, I can't. I don't have a personal relationship with my computer. I, I largely kind of just appreciate it as something Good that for you. <laughs> that's, that's meant to do. <laughs> yeah. you know it's a tool that i can use yeah. i i expect the same thing every day um and to be honest if it broke if it was no longer functional i would i would not have a great deal of um of sentimentality about getting a new one right i <laughs> yeah. I, I would kind of feel sentimental about i did feel sentimental when i replaced my college computer um yeah. quite a few years ago now um, but, you know, there's this sense that it's replaceable, right? So it's replaceable, it's made for uh, a function, and yeah. it um, acts the same way every day. And I think those are expectations we put on ourselves, right? So right. I um, I expect myself uh, to be able to be productive in the same way every single day, right? If you're a writer, this is a podcast about writing, mm -hmm. you want to be the kind of writer, and maybe you are but who diligently does their 500 words a day and it always comes out and, you know, and you just do it. But yeah. I don't find that that's possible. There are some days mm -hmm. where I can miraculously produce 2,500 words. And there are yeah. some days where I fuss over a sentence or I, I write three paragraphs and I hate it all. And yeah. actually that's not a drawback. That's actually just a part of writing. And actually it's a part of what makes writing interesting and, and better and being able to sit with things and marinate with things and work over things over and over again. So if I expect myself to be like a computer and as the, yeah. as the metaphor goes, crank things out, yeah. then I'll both make worse art, worse words, but I'll also feel guilty. I'll feel like there's something wrong with me because I'm yeah. imposing that kind of in, inappropriate metaphor onto myself. Yeah. And then also that comes with the sense that if I'm also regarding myself as a tool of production, right? If I'm just worthy because of what I can produce, mm -hmm. then that's also unforgiving because then if I don't produce, then I, I better get nervous because I might get thrown <laughs> out like that laptop, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's yeah. that's what I meant by it's unforgiving. It's the, we kind of unconsciously carry over the properties of a computer to ourselves and it's it can be quite crushing. Yeah. And if you internalize the idea that, that the human mind is um, a computer, as uh, a kind of computer, you know, unconsciously, if that's running in the background, here we go with another, another computer <laughs> uh, image. Um, insofar as I'm not like a computer, I'm feeling like I'm not sufficiently 
human or I'm not sufficiently, you know, I'm not doing a good job of being a person or a creative person or a thinker. Or a, and I, I, I'm under, I, there's a sentence you have that I just I love. It says, we can clot blood, write poetry, form romantic attachments, and, ch- and cook spaghetti bolognese, all while being, according to human standards, fairly stupid. The ways in which we fail to be a computer fall close to humankind's greatest strengths, loyalty, resilience, intuition, creativity. I think that's really smart and really helpful um, to remember that the great things about us are the things that are least computerish. I'll just I'll throw in a poem there that a great deal of our our value is just as E. Cummings puts it, being a human merely being. <laughs> yes, so good. <laughs> um, so at one point you say that metaphor is the fruit of attention. And I, that's not a the meaning of that is not self evident. So we might need some help on that. Um, and at the same time requires closer attention so that we're not deceived or confused by metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, metaphor is the fruit of attention. Tell me about that. So I guess maybe I could put a qualify in there of metaphor, good metaphors are the fruit of attention. Although I think in general, to some degree, they are all um, the yeah. fruit of attention. Right. So, Even if we're paying attention the wrong way, we we make metaphors. But I'm sorry. Go, exactly. go ahead. No. So I think, um, so I think of uh, a metaphor that I really love in a poem by Seamus Heaney uh, called Digging. And mm-hmm. he thinks about his, you're nodding like you know it, um, and love it too. It's, you know, he thinks about his father digging in the garden and all the different kind of facets of that in a very uh, earthy, specific way. And then he sees that as kind of his father's vocation. And then he he uses it as a metaphor to think about his own vocation as a writer. And the poem is, is beautiful. It's a beautiful poem for writers, um, but also for gardeners. And he's able to draw out aspects of being a writer that you might not notice otherwise because he's paying attention to his father gardening. And he maybe wouldn't uh, be able to speak as eloquently or as truly about aspects of what it is to be a writer, to think and to imagine and to put pen to paper if he hadn't paid attention to that kind of moment of his father being in the garden and what that was like and Mm -hmm. what it disclosed. And I guess just the principle to me behind that is that metaphors are using these kind of tangible, touchable things in the world to to speak about. They're giving us language about things that are often intangible. And that kind of comes with this this underlying uh, faith that our experiences in the world can disclose things about God and ourselves and about reality. And and that the closer we pay attention and uh, the more careful and, and experimental and joyful we are with our words, the more we can discover things. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I think I meant by um, metaphor is the fruit of attention. And we all, often do it, you know, not as carefully as Seamus Heaney, because, uh, yeah. you know, the, all the metaphors about computers come to us probably just from our experience of computers, our attention to them in a more distracted way. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, I think about and this. This may get us into the the next part of the same sentence that, that you wrote, um, that Metaphor requires close attention so that we're not deceived or um, or confused. You know, when when I think about Seamus Haney looking at his his father digging and and thinking about how 
that is like his own vocation as a writer. That's really helpful. The, the ways he he talks about the the pen as his shovel, and and mm. he's he's digging for for something the way his father's digging, and that's so helpful. And then on the other hand, I think it's important that the writer. I mean, since we're talking about writing and digging in a garden as a as a metaphor for writing, there are things about digging in a garden that aren't like writing. I mm-hmm. I can wake up any morning I want unless I have you know sciatica. I can wake up in the morning and mm-hmm. dig. And you just said we can't wake up every morning. There are there are things that keep me from writing that aren't that aren't necessarily that I'm a failure. Um, mm. You know, I often try to think of myself. You know, if my if my job is writing, a plumber's job is plumbing, and a plumber never wakes up and says, "I've got plumber's block, so I can't go to work." And <laughs> in some ways, I find it helpful to say, "Hey, this is just this is just my work. I sit down and I, I do what I do." But on the other hand, that writing is writing and plumbing are different from one another in some, some significant ways that, um, that can lead to me beating up on myself because when I say plumbers don't have plumbers block, mm-hmm. that's not as helpful as at one time I thought it was, let's say. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, and as you make the point that the whole point of a metaphor is here are these two things that you thought weren't alike they're alike in certain ways. There's this overlap of the Venn diagram that gives us insight into mm. the less familiar things, but that doesn't mean that there's still things that, that are don't overlap in the Venn diagram. And we, you know, you, any thoughts on a, a, a way, well, you've already talked about with the computer metaphor, there certainly are some helpful overlaps between thinking mm-hmm. about the human mind and a, and a computer. And you've already talked about, you better be sure you understand where it doesn't overlap or that's a not just an unhelpful metaphor, it's a harmful metaphor. Yeah. And I think what I want to say about that too. So, you know, I kind of had this playful thing in the, in the book where all the, the chapters are, all the chapter titles are metaphors. So it's mm-hmm. people are trees and wisdom is light. But I have in parentheses in each one of those, people are not trees, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is I... I think part of the 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 help of metaphor, right, is that it draws our attention to the things in the Venn diagram. But then because it is not the thing in the Venn diagram, it kind of then jettisons us back out to then pay attention to different aspects of it. So even using metaphors kind of in, invites us to pay more attention. And I think one of the reasons that that is helpful and why keeping the kind of bracketed knot in view is helpful is that um, to put it in the language of John Calvin, um, the human heart is a is an idol factory, right? Mm. It 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 creates things to worship, but I think that in a different way, it also creates this sense that we know something and that we have ownership over that knowledge. So we might oh, yeah. think that we know what love is, or we know we know what truth is, or we know even um, even we might think that we know. So one one of the poems is about. You know, um, the, the opening epigraph is Billy Collins, the plentiful imagery of the world needs to describe his love. And he yeah. uses all these different metaphors to talk about the person that he loves. But a part of the reason that metaphors are helpful is that it reminds us that even if you find the perfect metaphor that captures so much, the thing that you're describing is also still not that metaphor. It's still mm. bigger than you can understand. It's still more, more fascinating, um, deeper. And so metaphors kind of give us a, if you want to put it in this way, an epistemological humility. They remind us that we can have words to speak about things. 
and that we need to because it's such a deep human need. Um, but we also kind of sit with this posture of knowing that even the best poetic evocation of something is not exactly accurate. And I think that's something that maybe um, poets have on scientists, because I think sometimes there can be this confidence um, of that you can actually accurately say something with your words that exactly corresponds to things in reality. And we can say a lot of things and draw a lot of correspondences. But there's always this fragility, both of language and of human knowledge, that should invite us to kind of have a humble posture before before people and things. And I think yeah. metaphors help us do that. Uh, yes. I mean, scientists probably aren't good at, at knowing when they're speaking a metaphor. I mean, like, you know, you can talk about the laws of, of gravitation. Um, and now I, I, I think I am paraphrasing uh, Lewis. C.S. Lewis from his um, his book about 16th century literature, but he talks about, you know, we can scoff at the idea that the apple falls from the falls to the ground because it loves, because it's love that draws it, you know, that mm -hmm. sort of medieval notion. Um, you know, what we really, when it really turns out to be the law of gravity. But is it any less ridiculous to think the the, um, the apple is a little citizen of <clears throat> of the world who understands the laws and obeys them? You know that's that's a me that's metaphorical language too. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, um, you. I, I, another really helpful insight from we haven't even gotten out of the introduction of your book. By the way, There's, the, the introduction <laughs> itself is is fantastic. Um, but I loved something you said that the, the way you describe the value of metaphor. As taking, you know, we all have these deep, unutterable experiences that are really hard to put into words. Um, that we don't even quite know how to say what we what we feel, and then a metaphor um, makes that concrete. You know, almost always mm -hmm. the 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 metaphor, not always, but almost always, the thing we're comparing this inchoate idea to is concrete. So I go from the abstract mm -hmm. to the concrete. Now suddenly I can get my hands around something mm -hmm. that. I couldn't get my hand around my hands around before, <clears throat> um, and um, that insight is so helpful. I, and I've already touched on the idea that sometimes we think of metaphor, of figurative language, let's say, as decorative, ornamental, mm. um, poetic, poetic. And by poetic, we somehow mean it. It floats away from the real world and off into some sort of poetic world. But the truth is, metaphor, poetry, figurative language brings things back mm. to the. <clears throat> The world where we live and move and have our being it gives a local habitation and a name, you know, all that. Mm. So that wasn't a question. It, that that was an opportunity for you to say some things. No, I that yes, thank you for understanding what I meant to convey. Um, I think I, I opened the book by talking about kind of my own discovery of a metaphor that helped give utterance to my mm. kind of unutterable experience, which for me was you know a lot of people read it don't want to spoil it, but largely it's my own kind of. Uh, lifelong struggle with not feeling like I belonged somewhere and wanting to be able to belong somewhere, but not knowing how to belong and, mm -hmm. and trying to wrestle with all those questions that come in your, at that point in my early twenties <clears throat> and um, kind of stumbling upon a metaphor for that particular kind of pain, both kind of provided a relief because I was able to put words mm -hmm. to that experience, but also in a funny way helped me 
have a posture of agency because once I was able to put it into words and kind of imagine concrete aspects of it, I could I could strategize about what to do with that feeling. And I think that that's often something we struggle with is with these things we can't put into words. We don't know how to act because we don't know how to speak about them. And so, so. Joy, I don't think it will be um, spoiling too much for you to tell us what this metaphor was. It is okay. in the it is in the introduction. It's on about page two. So yeah, it's quite uh, yeah. And so you're you're no. speaking in abstract terms, and your whole point is we're we're being concrete. Okay. So so what do we got? What's what's your metaphor that because you just all that abstraction you just gave. Now what's the metaphor that brings that all to a point to a concrete point? So the metaphor was that I felt like a potted plant, and that was I I had that thought while I was I used to live. Um, in this very old flat that, um, it's funny, actually, I wrote about the flat in my last book at the last chapter. And then I wrote about the flat in the first book in my new mm-hmm. book, which I didn't mean to do, but there's kind of a nice continuity in that. Yeah. Um, but it's very old flat and it had all these apple, these pear trees that are St. Andrew's pear trees. And supposedly they've been grafted in since like the 1500s. So they were some wow. kind of, yeah. and I just had this moment, I was moving again. And at that point I had moved once a year, um, for, think 10 years. Um, and, but I've been in that flat for 27 months, you know, that was like mm-hmm. a great feat. <laughs> and I, I had this kind of moment of jealousy toward the trees, which would continue to, uh, grow and blossom and bear fruit and lose their leaves and do that over and over again, you know, for time, probably past, past my own lifetime. And I felt jealous that they had a place that they belonged. And I thought of my little potted plant that I kept all through um, that through COVID and I kind of kept it alive. Uh, I think I talk about this in the book as a kind of, you know, token, it's like a little talisman, <laughs> you know, if I keep it alive, I could keep myself alive. And, um, yeah. and it had started to look really scraggly and I was trying to decide if I wanted to give it to somebody else or if I wanted to try to plant it. And then I thought, Oh, if I try to plant it, it'll probably just die. And mm-hmm. then I thought, Oh no, I think I'm like a little pot of plant. You know, I have, I've been in my little pot. I've gone from place mm-hmm. to place. I'm getting I'm getting scraggly like I've grown too much for to stay in this pot. Yeah. But I'm frightened that if I just pick a spot in the garden and put my roots down that I'll, you know, I'll die of root shock as as mm-hmm. you can sometimes yeah. do. And um finding words for that kind of fear that I uh that I was always going to be portable that yeah. I didn't have it in me to survive being rooted somewhere was was very sad, but it was also very, it was just a great relief. It helped me understand my condition. And, yeah. and, and you know, of course, it also is, it's always good to keep in that brackets of I'm also not a potted plant and I probably won't <laughs> die if I stay somewhere. Um, yeah. But, but that, that was, that was um, the metaphor that kind of came to me mm-hmm. sitting in my garden that helps give me language for, um, for my feeling of rootlessness and my really deep desire to have a habitation in a place of belonging. Yeah. It's that's such a great example of how um um figurative language metaphor um is a form of concise language. Mm-hmm. Like when you try to describe all those feelings, it takes a lot it's of too work. Much. Mm-hmm. And then when you say, I am a potted plant, that contains so much. Now you could then unpack it. And end up saying as many words as you started with, but um, but still, that's an anchoring idea for a person for your own self, and also for anybody you're trying to communicate to. 
Um, mm. Such a great example of how metaphor, figurative language work. Um, okay. This is a warning to the listener. We're about to get a little technical and nerdy. Um, <laughs> as I was telling you before we started recording, Joy, I've never been able to get super interested in the distinction between simile and metaphor. Right. Mm. I've known since I was in junior high that they're both a comparison and a simile uses the word like or as and a metaphor doesn't. Mm. My love is like a red, red rose is a simile. Life is a highway as a metaphor. <laughs> and I know people care about that distinction. I never have. You do. So please make a case for why one should care about why a writer especially should care about the different. Not, doesn't have to be a writer. Why a person should care about that distinction. Well, for one, it's just fun to know things. So <laughs> that's 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 your first off. Okay. Uh, but I, but I think um, my my bid for uh, for why metaphor does matter, and I won't say it's superior to simile. I think they're doing different things. Yeah, I think sure. it's more existential because it, it is saying it's it uses the is language, right? It uses that ontological mm -hmm. language. Um, the reason I think it is important and it matters is it goes back to that kind of point earlier about how we have this tendency to think we have a grasp on things, mm -hmm. right? To be able to, to kind of know and own and operate. And I think metaphor, um, if you use a simile, you know that your lover isn't red, is not a redwood rose. You, mm -hmm. Like, that's fine. But that assumes that you know what your lover is, mm -hmm. that you know for certain that your lover is not a red rose, and that you have kind of a confidence and an ownership of the knowledge of what the lover is. Whereas I think that metaphors, when you say is, and there's that bracketed is not, they're much more mysterious, and mm -hmm. they're much more, um, they're, they, they do a lot more to you, they require a lot more of you, and I think that they inculcate kind of an attitude, again, of humility, openness. And they invite further attention because you have to be like, well, but that doesn't seem quite right. Um, mm. And so I think that they they invite us into a posture of of greater attention because we have to notice where things depart. You know, if I say mm. my love is like red, red rose, then I'm I'm perfectly contented to notice that she has red cheeks and that she smells nice and mm. carry on with my day. If I say she is a red rose then I think, well, no, she's not. And then I have to think about why she's not. And then I start paying greater attention. Mm -hmm. And I realize that my love is a, as a multifaceted being who, who my mind can never comprehend and who's, you know, constantly changing. So that's my pitch for why the difference matters. Well, I have to say, I, I, that's a point well taken. Your, your title, if your title had been, you are like a tree, that wouldn't have made much, that would have, Seems self-evident. Yes. The, the title, You Are a Tree, not self-evident. There um, you go. Yeah. It's more, it is literally more provocative, not just for the case of being productive, but because of that's what metaphors do to us. Yeah. Uh, that's good. You Are Like a Tree is literally true. Yes. Right? It's figurative language, but it is literally. I mean, there are ways that you're like a tree. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I'm not quite as invested. Um. You know, the person who is uttering, you know, making the utterance, you are like a tree, is hedging hedging his bets. Yes. The person who says you are a tree is all in. Yes. And, okay. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm going to do some thinking on that. I'm not ready to say I'm completely on the side of people who care about the difference 
but uh, but you have definitely moved the ball down the field. Now I'm using uh, uh, sports metaphors. Uh, <laughs> can I just return for just a second to that language? I, I don't feel we we might have given it short shrift. Your, your phrase you used of epistemological humility. Um, figurative language. You say, well, am I? Are we saying metaphor or figurative language more broadly? Um, contributes to epistemological humility. And I am using, that is the phrase you used, correct? Epistemological humility? That is, yes. Humility of of the way we know what, in our confidence that we, of how we know what we know. Yes, yes. I don't, I don't remember if I used it in the book. I think I might have, but um, yes. So humility about how we know what we know. Um, I think there are probably ways in which figurative language in general could be could do that. I do think metaphor in particular does that precisely because of that kind of uh, the not nature that it kind of, you know, to put it in theology language, it kind of makes us do some apophatic, you know, which is you have apophatic is the, the way of saying things about God by negating things about God. So immortal, invisible. Yes, exactly. Exactly. From our eyes. Yeah. Yeah, all, all those knots, I think. And I think that metaphor has that kind of integrally inside of it. And so I think that in that way, uh, metaphor does encourage a humility that maybe simile doesn't need to. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I guess another thing you could talk about, which I was too theologically scared to do too much with, but is analogy um, yeah. as well. Because analogy is kind of like a... Uh, I don't know. It, it it relates to metaphor, but it's kind of more difficult. It's a little bit more abstract in some ways to parse. Yeah. Here's when you talked about epistemological humility a minute ago, and I think this is a point at which I, I lost track earlier and couldn't remember what I was what I was thinking. But I think it was this. It's an important insight that that people begin to understand you know i, I don't think you have to, to spend a lot of time thinking about it to to realize oh wait we can only understand anything through figurative mm-hmm. language you know mm-hmm. we we don't have direct access to reality to ultimate reality mm-hmm. the way say you know the angels do what you know intellectus i guess is the language of, mm-hmm. of you know how angels know things directly they know things of god directly we know things typically through some sort of figurative language, you know, we, uh, that's not a, an especially, you know, unusual insight. The insight that I, that, that I picked up as you were talking about epistemological um, humility is that if we only know things through figurative language, um, or maybe I shouldn't say we only know them, but uh, so much of our knowledge is metaphorical, analogical, uh, even Similish, simile, I don't know whatever the word is, whatever the uh, the adjective form of simile is. Well, the the thing we know about all figurative language is it's not it it's not what we, <laughs> the whole point of of a comparison is it's not completely the same as the thing we're comparing mm. it to. Mm. Um, so we can only know through metaphor, simile, analogy, um, or a lot of what we know we know through those. And we're also conscious of how incomplete that kinds of knowledge is. Mm-hmm. You know, that that our that our insights always have to be our insights that come to us through figurative language are always um, tempered by the fact that my love is like a red red rose insofar as she has 
reddish cheeks and she smells good, but hopefully she doesn't have leaves or thorns. <laughs> so yes. I love it. That's that's super helpful. All right, Joy, we've spent a lot of time talking about <clears throat> the computer metaphor. Your whole point is there are better metaphors. There are other metaphors that we can think about ourselves. Let's just talk for, uh, we don't have much time left, but tell us about the tree metaphor. Why Why is it, why is it helpful to think of ourselves as a tree? I know that's not the only metaphor you explore in this mm -hmm. book, but let's start. Let's just, since we can't talk about all seven, let's talk about the tree. So part, as I said, part of the reason I reached for that was I thought I want to look for metaphors that are enduring, that are kind of more ancient, that have somehow lasted through thousands of years. And humans as trees is one of those. And I think we also intuitively speak about humans as trees, even in our technological world, right? We talk about seasons of life. We talk about yeah. feeling rooted or uprooted or unrooted. Uh, we talk about someone being a late bloomer, which I guess could be a flower, but it could also be a tree. Yeah. Um so there, there, we talk about be having a fruitful season, um, but particularly, so I kind of chose that partially because of that, but largely because it's one of the most um, integrated metaphors all throughout scripture of human beings and their, and their kind of state of flourishing or not. And I think about that from Psalm 1, but it's also when you think about um, in John, you know, when Jesus talks about uh be, being the vine right and the vine is a vine but it is it is like a tree it, it is mm -hmm. functionally a, a tree and um and uh and jesus is the true vine dresser and so i kind of went to that metaphor to sit with it and think about what it offers us and and in what ways humans are like trees and what that can open up for us and specifically i looked at in that chapter with psalm one um the idea, so it says, uh, like a tree planted by streams of living water, which bears its fruit in season, um, and which does not weather, but all it does prospers. And so with that one, I talked about humans are planted. So there's a sense that what we are, most of it is under the soil. So much of what I experience in talking to you and what you experience in talking to me, there's something we can see, but there's a lot that you and I cannot see about each other that forms who we are that and that has been formed over all the years of our life and so thinking about how humans we don't get just compiled like a computer we mm -hmm. grow and are nourished we're warped by things that hurt us over years and years and so that's a way in which humans are like that and so how does that that invites us to approach people with with mercy with a sense of mystery that mm -hmm. there's so much of what they are that we can't see and also with a sense kind of awe that any of us survive. You know, there's the, there is kind of this wonder when you look at a tree that it survives and it's just this kind of miraculous thing. Yeah. But also it's planted by streams of living water. So a lot of commentators say that that is, um, it's not just like, I'm actually, I live um, not too far from a, a burn, which is just like a stream. And there's all these very flourishing trees because they're by water, but it's not just that image that it's giving us, it's giving us the image of a tree in an orchard that has been planted by irrigated so that it mm. has a source of water. And so the idea is that the, um, the the flourishing one, the righteous one, the blessed person is like a tree that's tended to by God because it's nourished and it has all the water it needs. Mm. And 
So I spend some time with you about what it means to be the kind of creature that needs to be nourished, you know, mm. um, and that doesn't just need to be nourished by one thing, right? So my computer, pretty much, if I like plug it in, it will be charged, right? It's hard to describe it as being nourished. <laughs> um, and maybe I do a, a system update from time to time. But a tree doesn't just need you to pour in water. It also needs the right amount of sunlight. It needs... Um, to be pruned from time to time so it doesn't become overburdened. It needs birds to pluck off its fruit so it doesn't become overburdened. It needs all these kind of different multifaceted um, kinds of nourishment. It needs other trees to send mycelium to its roots if it becomes, yeah. you know, depleted. And so thinking about human flourishing as that, as needing many different sources of nourishment. And when we see someone struggling, we don't just go, oh, you need a recharge, you know, you need whatever that means. It means we go, what are the conditions of your flourishing? What is the environment that you're in and why why are you wilting? So that, um, again, is a more merciful, um, yeah. more merciful and also more gives you more agency because if you're a computer and you break, that's it. If you're a human being yeah. and you're struggling a little bit, there are many things you can do to help a tree. And um, there's a great little section in Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing, where she talks about like the one redwood that that survived in this particular section and she was like it's a really weird tree it looks strange but the reason it looks strange is because that's how it survived so yeah. be a weird tree um and i yeah. think that that is something that i find encouraging <clears throat> and then finally um it bears its fruit in season and that to me is about what a fruitful life is and we don't bear fruit all the time we don't turn out 500 words a day there are seasons of fallow winter it is very cold in Scotland right now, but that is a part of that is a part of what brings the green of the summer. And so understanding ourselves as as the kinds of creatures that have seasons, both in the sense of aging over the long period of life. But I also think you have lots of seasons, at least in my short life so far. I've had at least at least a couple winters and springs and falls. You know, we do we have those over and over again. And so I think all of those images give us a lot. And a lot more to think about what it is to flourish as a human being um, yeah. than the computer metaphor. Yeah, especially that truth that um, the winter is not a failure on your part. Yeah, it's it's important. Yeah, um, that's so good. All right, we need to we need to wrap this thing up. So I, I, I'm really interested to know, Joy, who are the writers who make you want to write? So I'm sure I'll think of 10 more afterwards, but when you yep. first asked me that question, you told me you were going to ask it. That's right. Two came to my mind. One is G.K. Chesterton. And I know that's a very uh, basic um, uh, cliche answer. And, um, you know, the sophisticated grown-up part of me wants to be like, no, no, I've matured. Uh -huh. But I remember when I read Chesterton, there's just a pleasure and a humor and a succinctness and a capacity to turn a completely winding, meandering essay into a punchline that I just think is so cool. Yeah. And then the the other one that came to my mind was Elena Ferrante, who I don't know if you've had a chance to engage with her. I just know the word. I, I, just, I, I know those the words. No, I, I know the name. Um, tell me about so, her. So I just last year, um, actually, I finished the series while writing the book, but um, read the Neapolitan Quartet. And it follows the life of of two young women who are kind of intellects and writers. So it could be a good thing to read for uh, your listeners. Yeah. Um, 
through from like the 1950s in Italy and early 2000s. And they have this kind of fraught relationship of jealousy. And it's it's a lot about kind of like how, how we find safety in the world. Um, mm-hmm. So one of them kind of finds it through her intellect and her, you know, her academic capacity to achieve, whereas the other one finds it through these kind of fraught relationships. Um, but her writing is like, oh, so the thing that makes me, it makes me think of is eating potato chips, which I really like potato chips. And mm-hmm. there's, you know, if you eat a really salty potato chip, there's some way in which it almost hurts your mouth, but you also want to keep eating. Yeah. And, yeah. and then, and then it creates a thirst in you. And that's what it feels like to read Ferrante. It's like, uh. a, it's like painful, but also makes you want to keep reading. And she has the ability to do kind of like a, a left jab with sudden plot twists that literally make you gasp. And really? um, all also having kind of weird existentialist philosophy going on inside of it. So I just, I just think, gosh, to be able to write um, like a bag of potato chips while also yeah. being an existentialist, that would be all right. The best bag, but bag of potato chip writing. Yeah, I'm gonna put that in my <laughs> pipe and smoke it. Um, I gotta ask, was Secret Life of Trees part of your preparation for for this book? Yes. Um, I'll make a confession, which was that I didn't read the whole book, but yeah. I think I actually quote Secret Life of Trees in the first chapter, talking about how they nourish each other. Uh, such a great book. Um, and uh, okay. Well, Troy Clarkson, I'm so glad to have met you. So glad you're here. Um, I hope we get to talk again soon. Thank you for the great conversation. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.